Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday night. It's time for Friends in Fiction. It's our favorite night of the week. We hope it is for you, too. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Christy Whitson Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be welcoming Colleen Oakley and Julie Carrick-Dalton, and Stephanie Marie Thornton will join for the after show. We are here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while celebrating independent booksellers. One way you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Colleen, Julie, and Stephanie's books, and books by the four of us, and all of our past guests, too, at a discount. All of our past guests is a lot of guests. Basically, if you would like to buy a book, it's probably on our <laughs> <laughs> that's so true yep. now, you basically if there's a book you want to buy it's in there it's probably there exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you've heard us talk about our amazing friends and fiction official book club with brenda and lisa we talk about it every week be sure to join their facebook page so that you can be there next month on april 17th at 7 p.m eastern when they will be joined by tonight's guest colleen oakley to discuss the mostly true story of tanner and louise and there's always our Writer's Block podcast that drops every single Friday on your favorite podcast forum. On our Facebook page, we always post a link to the newest episode on the top. So I know sometimes y'all visit the page and just scroll for book recs. But on the top, we pin things that are about the shows. And we put what the next Wednesday show is. We have this week's show you know, rolling, and we put the Writer's Block podcast all on the Facebook page. Our most recent episode, which is out now, with Ron and Mary Kay, Mary Kay Andrews <laughs> talking to Jenny Jackson about her novel, the JMA book club pick for March, Pineapple Street. Coming this Friday, Ron and I will be talking to Elizabeth Berg about her newest, Earth, The Right Place, for love. And it was just came out yesterday. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Okay, ladies, let's start tonight by introducing our first guest of the evening, our friend, Colleen Oakley, although we have now decided we're going to call her Co-Oak, right? Co-Oak. Co-Oak. Do we, okay, I think I missed the K. I like that, though. I like that. I thought it was just Co-O, Co but I like Co-Oak. Well, you know, because Colleen Hoover, who is on every bestseller list everywhere, is she's co-ho. So we're going to make, we want to make, we're going to make that a thing. Co-Oak. Co Co I like it. I like it. <laughs> it just rolls right off the tongue, evidently. <laughs> or not. 
Colleen is Colleen Co-Oak is the USA Today <laughs> bestselling author of several novels, including The Invisible Husband of Frick Island, You Were There Too, and Close Enough to Touch. Colleen was formerly a magazine editor for Marie Claire and Women's Health and Fitness. And like MKA, she graduated from the University of Georgia's, is it Grady or Grady College of Journalism? Grady. Grady College of Journalism. And she currently lives in Atlanta with her husband, four kids, and a terrier mutt named Baxter. So cute. Her new novel, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise, is set to be released on March 28th. And we love her and we love her book and we're so excited. <laughs> so, Sean, will you bring Colleen on? Coke, will you bring on Co-Oak? Hi, Co-Oak. <laughs> Hello. I love Thank that you. nickname. I'm trying to make Co-Oak happen. <laughs> <laughs> be like our version of fetch <laughs> we are not the mean girl okay colleen so great to have you again on friends and fiction now we know your new novel the mostly true story of tanner and louise is about a road trip with an unlikely pair octogenarian jewel thief louise and sullen 21 year old college dropout tanner who gets pressured by her mom into becoming louise's caretaker now as far as I personally know, none of us is an actual jewel thief on the lamb. <laughs> but I would love to hear um, from you ladies if you've had a favorite road trip over the years. And if so, who were your accomplices? Kristen, you want to start? I know you've got a story for us. Yeah. So, I, you know, I've been on a lot of road trips, but I, nothing for me can beat the time I went cross country with Chubby Checker on his tour bus. Um, so he picked me up in Orlando. His band was doing a tour like across the country and back. So they picked me up in Orlando. We stopped in Texas to visit uh, a friend of his who was also a singer from the 60s. We doubled back. to. We went all the way to California, doubled back to Nevada. I played poker on the bus with the band. I spent hours <laughs> riding shotgun as... Um, as chubby drove and people did double takes because chubby drives his own bus sometimes like to relieve the driver so imagine going down the road and looking over and seeing chubby checker driving the chubby checker tour bus it's crazy um and we got trapped in a sandstorm in winslow arizona which was kind of cool and um we ended the trip with a he dropped me off in pittsburgh um to see my best friend Kristen, who you guys all know, know. Um, she had just had her first baby and i was like i'll come on a road trip with you but only if you drop me in pittsburgh at the end so that's how i met my little nephew eddie for the first time at the end that's of amazing. that epic road trip it was crazy. Yep. Well. all right Pete, we know you've got something for us um you know I, nothing is cool as as a band bus that's for sure but spring break 1983 i was an at auburn and at the time my family lived in fort lauderdale pompano beach and i casually <laughs> mentioned to a few people like if you want to come down come down if you want to come down, it'd be so much fun if you can't just come here's my address here's oh Everybody I casually oh. mentioned it to showed up. Oh. And so we had one big van and I had people on my parents' floor. It is, we still talk about it. I had people on my parents' floor, sleeping on the deck, on the couches. Um, everybody showed up and it was oh a spring break to, re oh my God. <laughs> Spring up, oh, Sean. You're in so much trouble. It is a spring break, <laughs> but it was such a fun road trip. Like, and that's the thing about road trips, and we get to dive into Colleen's. But like, 
the the thing there is fun, but the getting there, yeah, like yes. it's so much fun. All about the journey. It's yeah. so fun. It really yeah. is. And when you no, live I, in Florida, your friends, yeah. you know, I grew up in St. Pete and when I was in college, my parents had a house on the water and um, that's how I got a ride home every year. I didn't have a car. Yeah. So I would just go, Hey, y'all want to come home with me for spring break? Uh, you drive. <laughs> Ditto, Kathy. And I think we, Mary Kay, I think we named the van. I think his name was like, I remember the van's name was Paul. We named the van. <laughs> Good name for a van. We named a van, Paul. <laughs> um, that's pretty great. Now, now I'm thinking that I should have chosen a different, more fun story than the one I'm going to tell because I've had a lot of fun road trips, but my mom's watching, so it's probably just as well as if I don't tell any road trips. <laughs> but um, when my first book, Dear Carolina, came out, um, it was kind of like I got invited to the um, the Nashville Book Festival. And why I didn't just say, hey, I'm going to fly to Nashville to the book festival, I don't know. But instead, we planned this like whole tour around it. And it was like Asheville and Atlanta and Memphis and Tupelo, Mississippi and like all these little cities. And so I flew to Atlanta and my cousin, Sydney, who, um, oh, she's actually the one that like I was putting the veil on her head. And that's how I got the idea for the book, The Wedding Veil. Anyway, that's who she is. But we were just always really close and we hadn't seen each other. And she had just graduated from her like PhD in pharmacy and she had this like week off. And so she came with me and we like just drove all around and I would drive through the little towns and then we would start to get to a big city. And, you know, she lived in Atlanta. So she would be like, get out, get out of the car, pull over, get out. And she would go like 150 <laughs> miles an hour and, you know, merge and do all the things. But we just had the best time. It was like just the two of us. And um, we saw the Peabody Ducks and, um, it, it was just really fun. I don't know. We like have all, we like made all these like fun little memories and it was just Aww. the two of us. And I think it was the only trip we've ever taken just the two of us. Cause normally it's like our whole families. And so, um, we just had a ball and it was a good bonding experience. Yeah. Nothing, awesome. you know, illicit happened. As far as we know, or as, as far as your mom knows. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> we'll text you later. Um, <laughs> So we'll she'll say something. She'll go. I just don't want to know. I just don't want to know. Just don't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I always used to tell my kids the statute of limitations, you know, had run, and I didn't. I didn't need to know. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, Meg and I go on have been going on book tour road trips for years now, and I'm sure she could tell you some hair raising tales. <laughs> but when we were 17, my best high school pals and I, and I'm still friends with my junior high besties. So I guess it was our senior year. We went on a road trip in my friend Deborah's 1969 Ford Mustang named Nubbin. And we drove from St. Pete to Atlanta. Now we were supposed to be looking at colleges. Went to we went to Atlanta, Athens, Durham, and Chapel Hill, ostensibly to visit colleges, none of which I could have gotten into. Certainly not Duke or Emory. Um, or probably Chapel Hill. Okay. The real purpose of this trip was to stay at flea bag motels, <laughs> buy wine with forged driver's licenses. Yes, we did that. Mm -hmm. the, the statute has run. <laughs> and then, um, we, you know, I, all of us still talk about rolling down the road in Nubbin, blasting Sly and the Family Stone and Santana on that eight track tape player. 
That's awesome. <laughs> and getting our first really intoxicating taste of adult life. So Colleen, any ro- I know your mom has got to be watching. Any road trips you want to own up to? Yeah. <laughs> Not in front of her, but I will tell one that she knows about, which is um, about four years ago, Fred and I decided to take our four children to Denver, Colorado from Atlanta, which I think we had to be drunk when we decided to come up with that plan and then didn't back down from it. Um, But yeah, so we drove 23 hours with our four kids, which is, which is half of the the trip that Tanner and Louise take in the book, which was very helpful to me when I was writing the book. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I would say it was great fun, but that would be a lie. You put the whole family to Italy last year, didn't you? I, we did. Yes. Yes. And your, that was great fun. Your Christmas card was my favorite thing in the whole world. When on the back, you were like, we're so sorry. Well, I mean, it's so cute anyway. But you were like, we are so sorry for all the like really annoying Italy stories and how much life yeah. better life is better in Italy stories. We'll be yeah. telling. We couldn't stop talking time. about it. Yeah. <laughs> you and Meg will have to have to exchange stories, folks. Co-o. Listen, if if that helps me get even half of her book sales, I take the name. Like a ten. Forget (laughs) half. Ten percent. Whatever. One hundred. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, Now you have your your hashtag. Okay, speaking of thrill rides, it is time to talk about the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise, which is out next Tuesday, March twenty eighth. Hashtag buy her book, damn it. <laughs> now, we have already told you that this novel is about a college dropout who teams up with an 84-year-old widow on the lam from the law for a wild cross-country journey. But Colleen, we'd love to hear you tell us what the novel is really about. Yeah, I love that you guys asked that question. So when I started writing this book, I just thought I was writing this fun road trip book. Um And it turned out to be two things that I didn't expect. The first is um, the character Louise is very greatly inspired by my grandmother, Marion Oakley, who I had an incredibly close relationship with. Mm -hmm. And she uh, died of just probably like a month before I started writing this book. Um, She was 92. It was February 2020. And it was devastating. I had a really hard time with her death. And writing this book really ended up being like my catharsis. It was part of my grieving process because it felt like I got to spend time with her a little bit every day when I was writing it. So that was an unexpected joy. And then the second thing that it's really about um, that I didn't really discover until the end of the book is it's really about being a woman in this world, what it means to be a woman in this world um, for both Tanner, for both being a young woman and then an older woman and everything she had been through and what it was like to be a woman for her. And, you know, kind of how far we've come from the time Louise, you know, um, was in her twenties and thirties to now when Tanner's in her twenties and really how far we have to go. So it's kind of an exploration, a fun, fun exploration (laughs) of uh, feminism. That's amazing. And, and I think in that is a bit of a seed of this story, which is your grandmother but, and we talk about this all the time because it's so fascinating, the origins of stories, where do they come from? What seed do they grow from? I want you to talk to us about the seeds of this story. I know it was your grandmother, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming it was also a story that was in the news a couple of years ago. So how did all that blend together into this story? 
Yes. So my grandmother, about five years before she passed, was diagnosed with um, late onset Parkinson's disease. And I don't know if you guys have ever known anybody close to you that had Parkinson's. It's a really tough uh, illness to deal with, um, mostly because of obviously the symptoms of it, but then the concoction of medications that they put you on to deal with those symptoms create really, really vivid hallucinations, really vivid dreams at night. And it's very difficult for the person to decipher what's real and what's not. So my grandmother, who had a wicked sense of humor, and we spoke on the phone two to three times every week, our phone calls, she started to say some very alarming things. So she started one time, she asked me if um, <laughs> if I had sent the check for $10,000 to New Jersey. And I said, what check, Grandma? And she said, well, for my gambling debts. And I said, oh, okay. And then another time she had told me that my Aunt Wendy had just gotten out of jail. And I said, what was she in jail for? And she said, well, for murdering that man. Um, and so these were all stories that my grandmother would have found hilarious. And then my family, we all started kind of sharing the most outrageous thing she had said as just part of the laughter to kind of get through our yeah. grief of what was happening. And of course, being a novelist, the, the little wheels in my brain started turning. And I thought, what if my grandmother, who had this kind of amazing life in her own right, you know, she graduated from Cornell with a master's at a time when women didn't really go to college. She met Jimmy Stewart. You know, she traveled all over the world. What if she also had this other very secret life that we didn't know about that was all starting to come out? What if she had gambling debts? What if, you know, she traveled because she was an international jewelry thief or, or con artist or something? And that's when the idea for Louise and the idea for this book was born. Um, and yes, Patty, the news article that you're talking about. So about, I don't know, four or five years ago, mm -hmm. there was a woman who was arrested in Atlanta and she was in her 80s and she had spent her entire life. She had a life of crime behind her as an international jewel thief. And I remember reading that story and going, well, this might be the most fascinating woman I have ever <laughs> read about because she kept evading the law. And she would get arrested, but then they couldn't hold her for certain things and certain reasons. I mean, she was fascinating. So, of course, that definitely played into this story as well. It is so fascinating. And it's so fascinating because the rest of us might have read that and been like, that's crazy and moved on. But you said, that's crazy. Grandma story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. it's just I, I find that fascinating, the way that stories grow out of these things. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I would love to be in your brain, Colleen, just for you know, your ideas are always, they're so good. Your ideas are always so good and so interesting. My um, brain is mostly, what am I going to feed these children next? <laughs> I can't imagine. I only have one and I feel like it's a constant like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? What are we having for dinner? What are we having yep. for? There's, <laughs> and this no. refrain, we don't have anything to eat. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> just, especially after I've just gotten home from the store. Yeah. Right. That's what I mean. <laughs> Well, Colleen, it's obvious that you've thought a lot about the differences in generations between 21-year-old Tanner and 84-year-old Louise, but you've done kind of a neat switcheroo and um, defeated our expectations. So Tanner is a rule follower who reluctantly admits to being afraid of virtually everything, and Louise is seemingly fearless 
except when it comes to heights. So who were your, <laughs> you, you, you spoke a little bit about your grandmother, but who was your role model for Tanner? Yeah. Um, Tanner, it's interesting. She really came out of nowhere, mostly as the antithesis of Louise. Um, you know, I needed somebody who was different than her, who was going to clash with her at every turn. Um, but of course, like most authors, there is a little bit of, of me and Tanner. I had to kind of go back many, many years to when I was 21 and remember what that felt like when you, you know, think that every single thing that happens to you is the most important thing. And that if something big happens to you, then your life is either set or your life is over and just trying to really figure out your place in the world. So um, there's certainly a little of that in there. I, nobody would ever accuse me of being a rule follower. So that's not uh, part of me and Tanner. Um, but yeah, so that's how she came to be. She's fantastic. They both are. They're such a fantastic duo. I just, I love them. Colleen, you were, uh, sorry, Co-Oak. I, I apologize. I, I get the program. Um, <laughs> so you were talking a little while ago about how the feminist themes in the book sort of surprised you, um, you know, and the themes about kind of what it means to be a woman, a mother, and a daughter. Can you talk a little bit more about how those came about and what you were sort of expecting it was going to be a light caper? And I'm curious whether those revelations along the way changed the framework of the story as you were writing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I really just came up with the idea and I started writing, I was just having fun. I was having so much fun with Louise and Tanner's interactions and their banter. And and then as I got deeper into the story, you know, I the themes just really started to come out. I started to do a lot of research on the second wave of feminism because that's when Louise would have, you know, kind of come up um, in her 20s and 30s, the things that she would have experienced. And also, you know, not for nothing, the, the movie Thelma and Louise, which was another big inspiration for the book, that movie, I rewatched it um, while I was writing the book. And of course, the themes of feminism are so strong in that movie. Um, but it's very zeitgeisty. It's very where Thelma and Louise were, you know, like in those that come out in the early 90s. And so I feel like this is almost... Um, the answer to that if Thelma and Louise were 84 and 21 in 2023. So um, yeah, so those feminist themes really started to just naturally come out and I just dug deep into them and, and also kind of turning expectations on their head. You know, for instance, Thelma and Louise, there's not one good male character in that movie. They're all terrible. Um, and I that's not been my experience in life. And I wanted to make sure that there were good male characters also um, in the book. So yeah. yeah, just kind of pushing against the expectations a little bit. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think I was surprised by the, the thread of domestic abuse in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting in my research, I did not know this, um, that the first domestic violence shelter, they used to call them battered women's shelters, did not open in the United States until 1973, oh my which God. is just wild. I mean, think of how necessary those shelters are, and women literally had nowhere to turn for help. 1973. Wow. 1973. Wow. Hmm. Wow. All right, let's talk about something cheerier. Yes. <laughs> Before we let you go, we would love for you to tell folks where they can find you online 
mm-hmm. as well as meet up with you in person on your upcoming book tour, in, including um, our our um, thing that we're doing together in Savannah. Yes, I can't wait for our event in Savannah. I believe that's April 12th at East mm-hmm. Shavers. Um, I will be doing five or six events in Atlanta. I'm going to Ohio, Pittsburgh, um, Charleston, uh, Litchfield Luncheon. I'm doing that, which is such a great event. Um, Beaufort, not Beaufort. (laughs) 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 I wish I was too. (laughs) Um, So yes, lots of lots of great events coming up. I hope I get to see a lot of you viewers out there at some of them. And um, you can find me on Instagram at writer Colleen Oakley and on Facebook at Colleen Oakley. Are you going to change your um, website to Oak or? Yeah, now, well, yes, I should, I should make that change. So or just brain. like buy that domain <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yes. And then they can like link together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to get on Absolutely. TikTok now. Just, you know. If you have four children, they can help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, my oldest every day says, mom, I'll be your social media manager. Meanwhile, I don't even let him have social media, but he's still probably better at it. Oh, than I am. Yeah. <laughs> they just know how to do it. It's like an yes, instinct. It's like instinctive. Yeah. That is funny. <laughs> okay. We've got a reader question from you that we think is so good. It's from Sue, okay. Johnson, from Sue Johnson Bishop. And she says, Colleen, did you ever feel like your grandma was helping you write the story? Oh. And did you have any goosebump moments? I love that. You know, I don't know that I can say I felt like she was helping me, but I certainly teared up at many points when I was writing it, just remembering her and, and, and thinking of things that she would have said or done. I mean, I, to me, that's why the character of the Louise is so funny because my grandmother was so funny and it's so many of the dry, sharp, sarcastic things that she would have said. Um, And yeah, I think my goosebump moments are, you know, when I get people's reactions to the book, the book has gotten a lot of good early buzz. And I just, you know, I can't help but think that my grandma has a little hand in that. So, yeah. I'm sure she does. Cheers with your Tanner. Oh, Oh, wait. Yeah, we've all got our Tanner. (laughs) Except for Christy. I know. (laughs) I have it. I told, I put it somewhere for safekeeping and it's so safe. I can't find it. It's so safe. <laughs> it's never going to break. <laughs> like immediately when it came in the door. So I guess that was like my, it's got to be, I mean, it's somewhere around. Oh, I <laughs> Little Will probably has it in his backpack along with the airline bottle of vodka. I hope not. Oh my God. He's out of fifth grade. <laughs> All right, Colleen, thanks so much for being with us. We're going to run along because we got somebody else coming on. Thank you guys so much. Good luck on the road, Colleen. So excited for you. All right. Well, here at Friends in Fiction, we are all about books from our separate book club to our podcast. And of course, this show is run by the four of us, all all of whom happen to have brand new books out in 2023. So if you think you might want to get signed first editions of those books, you can head over to booktown.com and find our Friends in Fiction first edition subscription. Um, It's a really fun package. It comes with four books spread over four separate months. And not only will you get signed first edition hardcover copies of each of our books the week of each of their releases, but you'll also get a limited edition kitchen towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for friends and fiction. So you can order from them right now at booktown.com. That's booktown with an E at the end. And we want to make sure you know about our in-person events coming up. 
You'll always read about them in our newsletters and on our individual websites. But for a quick recap, we'll be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th, and then in Charleston, South Carolina at Buxton Books on May 1st to celebrate the launch of Patty's new novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. Then June 6th in Huntsville, Alabama for Kristen's The Paris Daughter. And on July 20th, we'll be in Tampa at Oxford Exchange for Christie's launch of the Summer of Songbirds. <laughs> Tickets for all of those events are on sale right now. And all of them are going to be so different and so fun. So you don't have to pick one and then not the yeah. others. You can go to all of them. One you can have a road epic trip. road trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Road Jinx. trip. I'm just saying it'd be a great Ooh, I know yeah. some of us don't want to write an anthology but it'd be a great <laughs> when we say some we mean one anyway <laughs> that's, that's not all though because we will be in Christie's town of Beaufort North Carolina not Beaufort South Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer fundraising event with earlier.org, which feeds into what Kristen and I have both been saying is get your mammograms, detect it earlier. And then in October, we will be on the road together again. And I think we're about one day from being able to announce where and when for MKA's Bright Lights Big Christmas launch. In other words, in case you're lost in all of this, <laughs> between April and September, we will be together at least once per calendar month, and you can be there with us too. So make sure you're signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and our individual newsletters so you're always the first to know about all the fun. All right. So we have a great treat for you tonight because we get to do a deep dive with author Julie Carrick Dalton. So Julie is the Boston-based author of Waiting for the Night Song and The Last Beekeeper. Waiting for the Night Song was named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, USA Today, Parade, and more. And Patty and I got to have dinner with her last week, which is so yeah. exciting. <laughs> um, as a Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street novel incubator alum, Julie is a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis at universities, conferences, libraries, and museums. Her writing has appeared in Chicago Review of Books, the Boston Globe, and more. When she isn't writing, you can usually find Julie digging in her garden, skiing, kayaking, or walking her dogs. Her novel, The Last Beekeeper, was just released earlier this month. Sean, can you please bring Julie on? Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi. Welcome, Hi, Julie. Julie. It is so wonderful to have you with us. I know two of these ladies just got to spend time with you last week, but now we're going to get to spend time with you. So let's dive right in. Tell us what The Last Beekeeper is about. But then, of course, we want to know what it's really about. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. So The Last Beekeeper, it's my second novel. And it's about, um, it's a near future novel. It's set a little bit in the future. Um, it's a very recognizable future. I kind of want it to feel like it could be next month. So I don't put a date on it. Um, it's about a beekeeper and his daughter, Sasha, as the world's pollinator population collapses. So right now we talk about save the bees and we're all worried about the bees. But I set it in motion so that they collapse um, at a faster rate than we're expecting. And it sets the world to a food 
security and agricultural crisis. And of course that, you know, mushrooms into all sorts of other things. Um, and the book is really about Sasha and her father and the, the family that Sasha creates after her father goes to prison. And it's told in two timelines when Sasha is an 11 year old girl and when she's a 22 year old. And when she's 11, um, Sasha is living on a farm with her father and everything's great. It's a um, idyllic childhood. She's run around, runs around the woods. They tend bees together and she and her father adore each other until the bees die and her father's implicated in some potentially nefarious behavior and he goes to prison and she's kind of set adrift. And then the second timeline that goes back and forth, Sasha is 22 and she finally returns home to that farm looking for answers. Why did her father go to prison? Um, could he have done something differently? And even a bigger question, is she partially responsible? And when she goes home to this farm, she encounters some squatters she's not expecting and she's afraid of them, but they end up becoming this found family that she's always wanted. So she's confronted with this crisis of, do I wanna dig into my past and find the answer? Answers, or do I just want to look ahead at the future and um, imagine life with this family until she sees something that turns everything on its head? She sees, or at least thinks she sees, a honeybee. And they've been extinct for 10 years, but is it real? Is it a manifestation of her grief and her guilt in what she wants to see, or is it real? And if it's real, it has the potential to upend this whole family that she's built, or it could save all of them. So it's a, a story about secrets and redemption and um, and, a, and my love of bees. Oh, love that. Julie, awesome. rarely does someone describe a book and I get a little chill bump. Yes. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> when you said a little honeybee, it's like a little honeybee <laughs> because it means so much more than the little honeybee. It represents so much. Okay. When I was with you recently, you said that you love taking something scientific and pulling that string just a little bit into the future, not into the year 2525, but just enough that it feels real and we're in the world. And in the review from Publishers Weekly, they said you had superior world building that elevates this above similar books. So can you tell us about the near future world you describe and how you took something true and then pulled it through that way? And did it change when you were writing it or did you know what that future world would look like? Yeah, thanks for that. I love talking about the world building in this book because it was really difficult for me. Um, I went really far in the world building and I, my editor had had me dial it back because I had created a whole new currency system, a new class of workers in the United States, all these things. It, it was just a little bit too much. So I had to dial it back to what was important about this world. And what was important is I wanted it to feel for my readers familiar. I want it to be in the future, but I want you to be a little bit nervous that this might happen really quickly or really soon. But I also was getting a lot of, as I was writing, I felt a lot like I was writing about the past, about like maybe the uh, industrial Great Depression era, because in this world that I've created, it's a little bit dystopian. There's a lot of anarchy, um, lawlessness. There's um, They don't have electricity and running water in the farmhouse anymore. So it's really a mashup of the future and our past, that we recognize both of those things. And I want my reader to feel very comfortable and at the same time on edge about it. And as for the science, um, so I have been a beekeeper myself. So the science about the bees is something that I felt really comfortable with. The smells and the, like there's a humidity and a smell 
um, when you open a hive and the vibrations when you are near a hive and the sound, it's like this kind of like this big ohm, like an, you know, an ohm kind of around all around you and you feel like you're in the middle of it. So all those things were really, I, I just, I could write that really easily, but the deep science, I had to get some help. So I got a, a professor from Tufts University who's a beekeeping expert and I ran all the story ideas by her. I'm like, how can I make this thing happen in a realistic way? It hasn't happened but how can I make it so that it could? And she came up with this idea that I'm not going to talk about here because it's like that thing in the, the surprise. And it was actually, um, she helped me come up with this idea and she was really excited about it. And I loved engaging a scientist in the story so that it felt, it felt real. It felt like it could happen. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen this way, but I feel like, you know, we're, we're dancing on that line and it could. I love how you incorporate science. I just think that sometimes we tend to think here's a science book and here's a fiction book, but to pull that thread all the way through is really fascinating. Well done, you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Julia, I've got to tell you, it's very strange. Our, our after show guest, Stephanie Marie Thornton, also is a beekeeper. I mean, like, what are the odds that we would have two people on the same show yeah. that are, that are you know, that are so interested in bees? But um, you talked a little bit about the feelings associated with beekeeping for you. And that was such a fascinating thing to hear that um, the way you just described it. But I'm interested how you found your way into that. Um, it, was it a long time ago? Was it because of something you were writing? I'd love to hear about your sort of um, entry point into beekeeping. As well as, can you just tell us a little bit about the importance of bees in our ecosystem so that we sort of understand a little bit more about um, this world we're dealing with? Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, so the, um, I got into beekeeping um, just because I was curious. I was, I'd was i been keeping chickens in my yard. My neighbors all thought I was nuts. I had, you know, this chicken coop <laughs> in my little suburban neighborhood. And then I was like, well, if I have chickens, maybe, you know, I'll give bees a try. Because I've been reading a lot about, you know, why our pollinators are threatened. And they, you know, are not just bees, but, you know, the, the ones we don't like so much, the hornets and the yellow jackets and wasps and the mosquitoes even, um, that they're really important. And they pollinate a third of the food that we eat, that humans eat. And so, if we lose them all, what, how do we fill that gap with the food? And so I was reading a lot about it. So I was like, I'm going to try to keep bees and see if I can, you know, maybe be contributing to my little corner of the world. And um, I had a really um, a tough experience in the beginning. So I built my own hive at a, you know, hammer, nails and wood. And I was super proud of this little wooden hive and the bees were doing great. They were filling out the honeycomb and they were thriving and everything was going great. And then one day in August, all 40,000 of them died. <gasps> yeah. And I was devastated because I had tried so hard to care for these bees. And um, so, you know, I knew it wasn't colony collapse disorder, which is, is this kind of un misunderstood syndrome. Well, we don't really know um, what causes it where bees fly away and they never come back. Mine all came back, but they just died in a pile, literally a pile right outside the hive. <gasps> it, could, it wasn't a bacteria or a fungus or a parasite because it would not, it would have taken time. It would have slowly killed them. So I was, I was like, okay, I did something wrong. I guess I'm going to try again. So I restocked my hive the next year, the same week in August, <gasps> all of my bees died. Oh my gosh. And so what I figured out was they were poisoned inadvertently, I hope, by a neighbor's lawn chemical the same time <gasps> of year. And oh. it really it really devastated me because it made me think, mm -hmm. you know, if the, if my bees that I'm caring for so tenderly are dying, what what's happening to our wild pollinators? And if what if they all died? 
And that's where the book yeah. came from. What if wow. all the pollinators died? But yeah. I will say this is a, is a lot of darkness in this book, um, but it's a really hopeful story because I really, really believe that there's always a place for hope and that if we don't look for it, we're not going to have anything to fight for. And so in, in the spirit of hope, I am getting new bees in April and I'm really oh, excited. Great. And I live in a different location. I don't live in the same neighborhood anymore. I actually live downtown Boston and I'm going to have them on the roof of my apartment building. And um, I am really excited about it because I believe in hope. And I think that, you know, we got to keep trying. Oh, absolutely. What a great message. Yeah, we have a beekeeper in our neighborhood and we've talked to him about um, putting one of his hives in our backyard because my husband's a big gardener. But um, yeah, I, I can't imagine how devastating it would be to come out and see yeah. All those bees that you've taken care of. Anyway, yeah. bees and then families. Talk to us about the found families that you explore so deeply within this book. Could you tell us about creating these characters and their importance in helping to tell Sasha's story? Yeah. So these characters, there's um, when Sasha returns home as an adult to her um, her family's abandoned farm. There's a group of squatters living there. And at first she's terrified because this is kind of a world that's in chaos and they could be scary. They could be armed and they might not want her there, but she wants to find her father's research. So she goes anyway. And at first they're wary of each other, but they, they find, they, they find a family together and she warms up to them and they warm up to her and creating these characters was, they're my favorite characters I've ever written. The group of them together. I love them. They're all from different backgrounds. They have different histories and different wounds. They're all a little bit broken in this kind of broken world. And I loved setting them on this farm, isolated from anything else. It's just them and, and they're this baggage and the history they all bring. And some of them share their histories. Some of them are, hold it really tightly and don't want to talk about it. But together, they all, in different ways, they help heal each other. They help each other find a reason to keep going. And they, you know, I think they complement each other. But what I loved was isolating them. They're isolated from their own families they had before, from their communities, um, from their past. They're just with each other in this farmhouse with no water and no electricity and building that the relationships between them and how they survive together, how they source water, how they try to grow food and protect each other in moments. And sometimes they fight. They're not always, you know, and they're a family that, that happens, but the, those relationships to me were just, um, it was so rich. Like, I feel like I could write a whole nother book just about these characters. Oh, do you think you will? I, I don't want to. And the reason is people ask me this, I, almost all the interviews I've done, somebody's asked me, is there going to be a sequel? Because it ends with an, there's an open ending. I think it's a very satisfying ending that fulfills my job as a writer, but there's questions. But I want these characters, I feel like they've all learned something, they've all grown, and they've all connected with each other. And I kind of want them to go out in the world and just do their thing. But what I would like is a postcard or something from them to let me know what, what ended up happening with them. Because I feel like they, they've like, They've all grown up, you know, the kids are all, you have to let them go. But I, I don't think I want to revisit it because I want to imagine all the things that they might be doing. And I don't ever want to like put it in ink so that there's no other wondering. Yeah, I think all of us have created stories with characters um, and maybe we can't do another whole book with them, but we'd love to know where they are and what what's happened with their lives. And you, you did that beautifully. You made us wonder. Yeah, for sure. Well, Julie, we're hearing more and more about climate fiction. So for anyone who hasn't delved into these books, can you 
talk a little bit more about climate fiction in general. And then can you tell us what created this focus in your writing? Yeah, thanks. So I, I don't know that there's a formal definition, but I like to think of climate fiction as, you know, any fiction that um, takes on um, themes of climate change that make you think about it, that, you know, if they consider the science seriously. And they come in, you know, horror novels, there are rom-coms out there that are taking on climate crisis, um, a lot of, you know, dystopian post-apocalyptic stories, a lot of YA stories. And what I also see, and I don't have any data on this, but just from what I'm observing, I think there's a lot more writers of color writing in this space than in publishing as a whole. I think there's a lot of indigenous writers, black writers, brown writers, um, writers in communities that are marginalized. And I think it's because those communities tend to be on the front line first. They're feeling climate change mm -hmm. first and worst, and their stories are rising up. And some of the most amazing work that's coming into the space, I think, is coming from a, a huge range of authors, which I think makes it a really exciting space to be writing in. And um, I do a lot of, talk, of talking about climate fiction, so I'm glad you asked that. Thank you. I do. I go. I speak at universities and museums and conferences a lot about this intersection of art and climate science. Um, and I've done some. I'm going to be doing an art gallery opening um, in the Boston area soon. That's a visual artist, um, and I'll also be talking about fiction and art, how they all intersect. Because I think that the idea of telling narratives that engage climate science brings in new people who might not watch a documentary about climate science or they don't yeah. want maybe not read the newspaper because it's scary, but they might care about people. They might care about my characters living on a farm just trying to get by. And that is kind of an entry point to a conversation. But that's not why I write it. The, the reality is I just wanted to tell some stories about characters. And I just, I think I think about this stuff a lot. I, I think, you know, it all bubbles up. So that's where my stories go. I come up with characters and maybe an idea, but it always comes back to environmental themes or climate because I think about it. So I have finally figured out, I'm working on my third book now. I just signed a contract for two new books um, with my same publisher. That's awesome. Thank you. And they're both also climate related novels. And so what I've come to understand is all of my books are my, my own way of performing therapy on myself to work out my climate anxiety. So I <laughs> You know, it's just what I want to write about because I'm thinking about it. And my characters I create, they're thinking about it because I guess all of our characters have a little bit of us in it. So, so I, I think that's, I can't imagine writing anything else because that's, those are the ideas that come to me. Wow. I think so sometimes we use our writing as therapy almost, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. the things that yeah. are, we're, we're trying to work out, we work out in story. Yeah. So for sure. Absolutely. Well, Julie, we well, obviously we were all big fans of your amazing debut, Waiting for the Night Song. So um, and would certainly recommend that people who want to delve a little more deeply into the genre, you know, go read that book also. But do you have any other books that you would recommend kind of in this genre for people who are interested in learning more? about climate fiction, reading more climate fiction. I actually have one right next to me because I was reading it on the beach today. <laughs> oh, God, okay. Perfect. Um, I was like putting people on the spot because I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I'm like literally reading something and I love it and I like can't remember. I'm like, yes, it's the same. Your it's brain goes to fuzz. I know. Well, this, this book is called The Light Pirate and it's by Lily Brooks Dalton. She's no relation to me. She's just another Dalton out there. But um, <laughs> it's also a, a near future climate story. It's set in Florida. There are, you know, hurricanes, rising water, and it's such a beautiful story about human beings. I mean, it's scary and it's dark, but it like it also has this hope that you just the the character that she creates. There's also some magical realism in the story, and it um it it just gives me so much 
faith in humans, which sometimes I don't have when we talk about climate, but it's a really beautiful story. So that's the one I'm reading right now. And I'm just like tearing through it is wonderful. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love hearing about things like that. Yeah, it's a good book. Kathy, you're you're on mute still. We've got this high pitched noise that we're trying to um, <laughs> trying to figure out. It's, it's, it's the bees. It's the bees. <laughs> They've gotten into the system. Yep. I'm like, is Julie, it me? Julie dropped her bees. I don't yeah. hear it. I didn't even see that y'all were talking about it. I was so into what Julie was saying. It's the bees. It could be the bees. But Julie. We've loved hearing about your book and getting to know you. Can you tell everybody how they can find out about your tour and where they can connect with you online to find out about you and your work? Absolutely. So I am I am still on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Julie Cardalt. So Julie and C-A-R-D-A-L-T. I'm on Instagram at Julie C. Dalton. And I'm on Facebook at Julie Carrick Dalton. Um, that's also my website, juliecarrickdalton.com. And if you go to my Instagram feed, you'll see I have my um, my tour schedule. I'm going to be coming to Atlanta and Cleveland, um, outside of Philadelphia. Um, let's see where else. I'm going to be coming to the Gaithersburg uh, Book Festival, which I'm excited about because I'm from Maryland. So it's going to be some home turf. And then I'm going to be doing a bunch in New England, of, of, you know, this late spring and summer and a tour in the mid-Atlantic in the fall. I'm going to be hitting some universities and some bookstores um, in Maryland, Delaware and D.C. Great. That's amazing. We'll have to find you on the road, Julie. Yeah. I want to get in on one of these road trips you're planning. Right. I know. <laughs> yeah. Also, when I come back next time, I would like a pre-prepared uh, nickname, I think. Oh, okay. yes. I know. We dropped the ball. Exactly. J-Doll. 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 You can work on it. I'll, I have we need to workshop this a little bit and get back to you. Um, and when in the road trip, we'll all take together. I think Colleen needs to drive. Yes, yes, yes. I think Oak ne- Co-Oak needs to drive Co-Oak. the, yeah. the van. <laughs> and we'll, like I know what we'll do. We'll name the van Co-Oak and we'll all go together. Yeah, because like naming a van Paul, that is the most boring. <laughs> I didn't name it. I'm just telling you what it was. How can you name a van Paul? Co-Oak, I think you're still in the background. You should pop in. Yeah, bring her in. <laughs> are you I down driving i don't think you want me to drive but i will <laughs> how many cars I want do you have Julie in that car characters here? and 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 louise to go together to the farm <laughs> holly do you have a mom van oh of course i have a mom van i can fit everybody and then some we can invite more oh, people <laughs> problem solved okay yeah, we'll throw soccer stuff out the back of the van as we ride. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You two are so much fun to talk to. Thanks for coming on today. That was awesome. This we is a great night. Thank you. you. Yeah, it's thanks for being with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you all so much for being with us. We had such a good time with both of you. And we know everybody out there loved watching you, too. So don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Tune in next week. We'll be joined by Lisa Scottolini and Robert Dugoni for what promises to be a spectacular winter season finale episode. Wow, season finale, guys. Look at us. I know. Next and week. be sure to stick around for our after show where we'll be talking with Stephanie Marie Gordon. Good night, everybody. Bye. Night. See you in just a minute. Hello, everybody. 
and we're back. Okay, now I think with, with our friends and fiction spring break coming up, we're all going to have to post hashtag spring break photos. Oh, that's a Ooh, good idea. I like it. Yeah, I'm going to be yeah. in spring break. I'm super excited. <laughs> Just a quick flash of the 1983 spring break, and then we'll go from there. Oh, yeah, I'll have to see funny. if my girlfriends can find any. Uh, one of my friends, Sue, is very good at chronicling and keeping track of stuff. And as you might guess, I am not so good at that. I can like think of some real doozies off the top of my head. So (laughs) you just got done with spring break, right? Yeah. Noah's spring break. Yeah. But we just did some local stuff, you know, so right. It was, Oh, we actually did run into the San Diego state basketball team at dinner one night though. They were, they were here to play in the NCAA tournament. So like they had dinner right at the next table over one night. I was like, that's kind of cool. Right. Yeah, they made it to the Sweet 16. I'm impressed. It was obviously the dinner company that, you know, yeah, clearly. Right. Yeah, they made the spring break. Pushed them into the next round. Obviously. Yes. (laughs) Have you had spring break yet? Me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, um, no, it is April 10th. So we actually, yeah, we have a little while. But it's on our, so I'll be on vacation on our vacation. So that's great. Well, that was good timing. That lines up. Yeah. I actually went on, I went the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to tell them like, I'm not going to be here. We've got to figure it out. And then I was like, oh, we're on break. I'm I'm on spring break. (laughs) Well, I mean, and don't panic y'all. Next week's our season finale, but we're about to announce the most incredible spring summer season. It's insane. We're so excited. It's insane. But for now, for now, let's welcome Stephanie Marie Thornton. Stephanie is a writer, a librarian, and a high school history teacher who has been obsessed with forgotten women from history since she was 12. She has written about many of history's forgotten women, ranging from Theodora of the Byzantine Empire to Genghis Khan's wife and daughters, to two women connected to the Cold War, to Theodore Roosevelt's rebel daughter, Alice. That is a wide range. I mean, that's a lot of history. (laughs) She lives in Alaska with her husband and daughter. Her newest book, Her Lost Words, which that cover slays me. I just love that cover. Do y'all see that the feather, that's a feather quill, but it's made out so beautiful. Beautiful. Anyway, this is a tale of two literary legends, Mary Shelley and her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. I'm going to have to ask her how to say that. Um, who both shaped the world with their words. It is set to be released on March 28th, this coming Tuesday. Sean, can you bring Stephanie in? Hey, Stephanie, welcome. It's so nice to have you. And I cannot believe the coincidence about the beekeeping. Like, what are the odds we'd have two beekeepers on in a night? I know. As I was listening, I was just totally hooked. Um, Yeah, I've got two hives that I managed so far to overwinter in Alaska during one of the snowiest winters on record. So we've still got so much snow. So like one more month, guys, one more month. Oh my <laughs> Hang in there. Oh. Keep each other warm in there. Exactly. <laughs> Snuggle up. Exactly. Your little wings. <laughs> I, I have a friend and we were joking. She was like, you should knit them all sweaters. I was like, don't tempt me. <laughs> 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 oh my God. I want to see that. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Stephanie, 
We are so thrilled you're here tonight. Can you give us the quick elevator pitch for Her Lost Words? And then the question we love asking our guests, what is the book really about? Okay, so Her Lost Words is the story of Mary Wollstonecraft, who is considered the world's first modern feminist, and her daughter, Mary Shelley, who of course is considered the mother of modern science fiction uh, with Frankenstein. Um, so that's the, the elevator pitch. The story is really, it's a mother-daughter story uh, because this is not a spoiler. Um, Mary Shelley was born and her mom passed away of childbed fever just a few days after the fact. Mm -hmm. So she spent her entire life really kind of searching for her mom. Um, mm -hmm. So this is the story. It's two amazing literary legends, um, both finding their own way in a world that didn't recognize women um, and certainly didn't think that women could write anything that was worth reading um, and also trying to find each other. Um, no. So uh, the mother-daughter angle is near and dear to my heart. Absolutely. The approach you took to this novel is so interesting to me. You know, rather than writing biographical fiction about one of the women, you braided the stories of, the, of a mother and a daughter who changed the world and have been largely forgotten. Why did you decide to tell their stories together rather than just focusing on one of the women? So that's a really great question. Um, my in on this story was actually Mary Wollstonecraft because I love stories of women that people, they're not household names. Um, I think most people, especially book lovers, know who Mary Shelley is. Um, but Mary Wollstonecraft, like, how do you pronounce her name? Like, who is exactly. this person, right? <laughs> um, and I'm a high school history teacher. I taught AP World History for years. Um, I just this year transitioned to being a librarian and teacher, so I no longer teach it. But uh, while teaching the Enlightenment, I fell in love with Mary Wollstonecraft because amongst all of these big male names like John Locke and Voltaire and Rousseau and so on, she's the lone woman who was like, wait, <laughs> I, and about enlightenment and reason and education. And um, you're leaving out literally half of the population, guys. Um, and some of those gentlemen got on board with that argument and some of them did not. Um, so I, I love stories of like the suffragettes from the, the 20th century and so on. But I thought someone has got to tell this woman's story. So as I started reading more and more about her, I, of course, knew that she was Mary Shelley's mom. But Mary Shelley just gets woven in a lot because she is the bigger household name. And then it occurred to me that Mary Shelley, a lot of what she wrote, and we, we all know Frankenstein, but she wrote quite a few other novels and travel logs and short stories and things. Um, a lot of it is really a, a mirror trying to find out more about her mom. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, that that's a story that anyone can relate to. We all have moms. So many of us have daughters and it gets intergenerational. Uh, so I just couldn't tell one story without the other story, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, and many of us know Mary Shelley in association with Frankenstein, of course, as we've mentioned. But one of the things that I learned from this book is how much of a trailblazer she was for every single woman who has gone into writing since then. So can you talk a little bit about her journey as a trailblazer for all of us? Yes. Um, I, I cringe and then I cheer because uh, as I was reading about Mary Shelley, uh, there was a passage that... Um, a number of historians and scholars had said, 
Well, Mary Shelley didn't write that much of it. It was really Percy Shelley who wrote it. So for a long time, she was actually discounted that, well, I mean, she wrote some of it, but if she hadn't had her husband there, then it wouldn't have ever gotten published. Um, And that now has been set aside. Um, And the comment from a number of different writers and historians and so on um, is that Percy did have a hand because he was already a, a published writer and they were friends with Lord Byron who I could talk a lot about Lord Byron, but we'll just say <laughs> him now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Percy did say like, Mary, like, I think we could do something with this. And he did have an editorial. Um, yeah, he, he did do some editing, but the, the commentary today is that he did less than most modern day editors did. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote this book. Like it just blows my mind that, you know, someone today would be like fresh out of high school, wrote this book that is now an enduring classic. Um, So she writes it. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know the the background, but it was a rainy day. They were all stuck in this villa in Switzerland and stuck with Lord Byron. I mean, I would do anything to escape Lord Byron. So (laughs) So they're all writing and she's the only one who ends up finishing her story. And then it gets published by this hack press. Like this woman just persevered um, and she kept writing, um, even though Frankenstein had to be published anonymously. uh, People didn't think that a woman could write or should write things like Frankenstein's kind of dark, right? If you're going to write, you should write some fluffy novel that I don't know, is filled with flowers and unicorns, not unicorns. but (laughs) Love, lots of love. It should have yeah. so much love. Maybe with bunnies. Yes, bunnies. there we go. Bunnies would be perfect. Um, and then she also writes nonfiction. So she writes some travel logs, um, which again is following in her mother's footsteps. Um, and then after a series of tragedies, she comes back to Frankenstein and ends up rewriting it. It had gotten popular on the stage. Um, and she as you know, with more of an editorial eye, um, says, you know, I can make this even better. And so it gets re-released um, and it just gains popularity from there on out. Um, she's also the one who really preserved Percy Shelley's legacy because he was reviled, not as much as Byron, but um, during his <laughs> lifetime for um, being an atheist and all sorts of other things. And she compiled all of his final um, papers and poems and published those. Again, didn't get credit for it. and. Um, like you name it, the woman wrote it. She was just a, a constant wordsmith and a powerhouse when it came to writing. Wow. Yeah. And it's so nice to see them in that setting instead of yeah. the myth- mythological um, setting yeah. that, you know, we hear the story about about the contest and them being stuck in the villa and everybody write a story and, oh, it's so sweet and fun. And and Mm -hmm. when you look at what she had to do after that to even have a Mm -hmm. career in this, but I'm sorry, you're not going to wet getting out of talking about (laughs) Percy Shelley and Lord Byron. So (laughs) you're, you bring these groundbreaking poets, Percy Shelley, her husband and Lord Byron. Ooh, vibrantly to life on the page. I want you to talk about writing about these two larger than life men in the early 19th century. And was there anything that surprised you in your research about them or kind of what you see is what you get? Um, Yes, I will make fun of Lord Byron (laughs) and the cows come home. 
I feel like he put himself out there and he deserved it. And he, if he were alive today, would be like, bring it. Um, also, the more variety for Lord Byron, the better, right? Um, I loved writing him. If I had to be in the same room with him, I think there would be bloodshed. <laughs> he, I, there's a little twinge of sympathy for Lord Byron because he was someone that I think today you wouldn't really even bat an eye. Um, he would have been someone like, I could see him performing a cabaret on the stage or something along those lines. Um, and great entertainer. For his time period, he was so wildly flamboyant and just operated outside the norms of society with his many mistresses. Um, there were rumors that um, he was homosexual, which of course at the time was not accepted. Um, when I read through some of his letters and I, I got the opportunity when I was in Rome last summer to go to um, the Keats and Shelley Museum, which has a lot of Byron stuff and Mary Shelley's also, um, just reading through some of the little snippets, there is some sympathy because he was so insecure. He had a weight problem, he had a limp. Uh, so I think some of it was overcompensating. So I can give him that, but then also like the way that he treated Mary Shelley's half-sister, um, who was one of his witnesses, and their daughter, like that's unforgivable. I'm not gonna give any spoilers. Yeah. Anyone who knows Lord Byron knows that he was not kind to the women in his life. Um, so that's where he deserves all the ridicule that we could ever heap upon him. <laughs> um, Percy Shelley is a little bit more complicated in my mind um, because the story is told from Mary Shelley's point of view and from her letters and everything. She just loved him. She just yeah. loved him. Um, and he, he was a romantic poet. So he's yeah. larger than life and uh, is this man who would sweep I think a lot of women off of their feet, just with the power of his words alone, yeah. um, kind of reminded me, I'm sure many people are familiar with the Hamilton musical, like mm -hmm. Alexander Hamilton won Eliza with the power of his words. I think Percy yeah. did that too. Um, yeah. And he was not perfect. Um, it, it was painful sometimes to read about the, the gossip sheets and the ridicule that was heaped upon Mary and Percy. Um, they, they did elope, so they did invite some of that, but what they were doing, if it was, you know, today, um, they wouldn't have suffered the intense scrutiny that they did. Yeah. It really did, I think, bother Mary to um, a pretty significant degree, especially when it impacted her family, so. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, I told you how much I loved this book. I mean, I... Um, I read, I finished the book on an airplane uh, a, a while back. I, I blurbed the book, so I read it a while ago, but I finished it on a plane and was like full out sobbing on the airplane. Like, like not just like the little tears where you're like, oh, that was so touching. I had like tears running down my face and I was like, <gasps> you know, like <laughs> sniffling. Yeah, it was not pretty, but like it, the book just, it, it really was such an emotional book and that taught me so many things about these people I didn't know. I knew the names, I knew a tiny bit of the history but you did such a wonderful job of bringing them to life. So I wanted to ask you, um, finally, can you talk to us a little bit about the title, Her Lost Words? Why was this title so fitting? 
I can. And first, I'm going to say that part of me feels bad and like, I should hand you tissues. And, and the other part of me is like, ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> My evil plan worked. <laughs> um, so her lost words, I think, applies to both Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, with Mary Wollstonecraft, again, she's not a household name, but she's the woman who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Like, yeah. that's the the cornerstone of modern day feminism that women should be educated and women should have equal rights and why in the world are we not doing these things educate your daughters they're not just meant to get married um she also wrote so many other things we have her letters so we get a ton of insight um so that is like another facet of the title her lost words oftentimes we don't have people's personal letters their diaries etc um so that that was able to inform a lot of her her inner thoughts, feelings, turmoil, etc. Um, and then with Mary Shelley, we know she wrote Frankenstein, but what else do we know? Um, and then there's also the the added connection that Mary Shelley is looking for her mom, but she never knew her mom. They had just a few days together, and she didn't remember any of that, of course. So trying to recapture well who was my mother? Um, as she gets older, um, I think anybody who has lost their mother, I did when I was 12. Like, as you get older, well, what did my mom experience at this time? So trying to piece that together in a time frame when there's, there's not video recordings, there's not, you know, messages, there's not a lot of things. Um, the words were what she was able to connect back to her mom with. So I, I felt that was an apropos title. Well, your words connected with us, or at least with me, very deeply. So I'm so happy we had a chance to dig in and talk a little bit about your book tonight. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. It was great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad we had fun too. Okay. All right, everybody out there. This is, that is it for us tonight. Make sure to join us next week for our season finale as we welcome Lisa Scottolini and Robert Dugoni. See you then. Good night, everyone. Good night, y'all. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.